Now, because it's been a month, I'm sure you all remember exactly where we left off in our text. Uh, <laughs> um, on page one of your handout, I actually back up to the beginning of the chapter. We had studied through verse 11 the last time we were together. And in that um, period of time, you see uh, Paul coming to Corinth, meeting Priscilla and Aquila, either establishing the Corinthian church or growing it. We're not sure whether there was one already begun, um, but we do know it was made much more significant by Paul's presence and his teaching. Then you have in verse 7, um, after Paul got frustrated with the Jews that were there in the synagogue, he shook out his garments and left and went next door to one of the followers of Christ, Titus, Justice. And then the next verse, verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, which means the head Jew in the city, became a believer along with his whole city. Then Paul had a vision where uh, God came to Paul and said, you're going to be safe no matter what. I will be with you. You will not be harmed. And so he stayed there for 18 months. Now, that's significant in that Paul had never stayed that long in any one of the single cities in his first or second missionary journey. So he was establishing himself in this city uh, for there's many reasons, but uh, you just have a significant deepening of the roots there. You can do a lot in 18 months if you work hard every day. You can also do nothing in 18 months if you don't do anything every day. But the, you can see the growth in this city, and we'll look at it in a minute when we actually look at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, why that was such an important foundational piece. Then, in the next section, where we did not study last time, we have a timestamp in verse 12. And because of our attempt to do everything chronologically, we can precisely date when this next section happened within, within a year. So it says, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, a couple things, Achaia is southern Greece. Northern Greece was Macedonia, southern Greece is Achaia. Achaia included Athens, uh, Delphi, um, Corinth, and also the um, Spartans. So the, that's that section, that lower section of Greece. Gallio was the proconsul from 51 AD to 53 AD. We know this very specifically. In fact, they have found a letter, fragment of a letter, and I actually saw a picture of it in one of the books I have, of Emperor Claudius writing to Gallio in Corinth in 51 AD. So he know, we, we know he was there. Now there's some significant things. We have to remember when you look at the history of the New Testament, this is a great eraser. <laughs> Let's take the other one that might actually work. Okay. <laughs> Maybe this bad one needs to be dispensed with. 
Okay. Getting our chronology correct. We have we talk a lot when we talk about the New Testament about Nero. But Nero wasn't the emperor yet. I'll get my notes out here correct. So I get the dates right. Claudius was the emperor from 41 to 54 AD. Our time for this passage in Acts 18 is approximately 52 AD. So you can see it's still within the reign of Claudius. Now, Nero came next. Nero was the emperor from 54 to 68, which is why from pretty much from this point forward, the latter half of the New Testament was all under Nero. That's why we have a lot of conversation about him, why Paul ended up going to Rome under arrest. It was still under the Nero time. But there's some tiny little um, interesting facts related to Gallio <clears throat> and Nero and Claudius. Nero was adopted by Claudius. If you remember back when we studied Galatians, um, seven of the first eight emperors in the biblical times were actually adopted by the current emperor at the time. Claudius was the great uncle of Nero. So he adopted his grandnephew, which is interesting. Later, and I'm not going to get all the details here because you'll forget them anyway, but Claudius had three wives. His last one was Nero's mom. And most historians believe that she poisoned Claudius so that her son could become emperor. Aren't the one big happy family? Thanksgiving must have been a great meal every year. Are you sure this asparagus is good? It's kind of funny. Anyway, now you wonder, so what's the connection to Gallio? Who cares? Why, why, am I, why are you going into all this detail about the emperors? Well, in 51 AD, Seneca was named as Nero's tutor. Seneca is one of the most famous philosophers of Roman times. He was the main proponent of Stoicism. If you remember, we talked about Stoicism briefly back in the conversation of Paul on Mars Hill because he was dealing with the Stoics in Athens. Stoicism and the writings of Seneca are still widely read even today. So you have Seneca being the tutor of Nero. And by the way, Nero was 16 years old when he became emperor. So he had been tutored for three years by this Stoic Seneca. Seneca's older brother was Gallio, the guy in our text here. That's why in this long convoluted uh, trail, I'm coming back to this connection. You have Claudius hiring Gallio's younger brother, he's even known as Seneca the Younger, to 
tutor his adopted son who is being groomed to become the next emperor, and he appoints Gallio as the proconsul or governor of Achaia. This is significant because Achaia is one of the key uh, economic uh, hubs of the Roman Empire. A lot of the commerce flew, flowed through Corinth at that time. So isn't that fascinating? I know you care. Um, <clears throat> his full name was Lucius Unius Gallio Anianus. He only lasted in uh, Corinth for two and a half years approximately. He had ill health. He was, um, in fact, when he resigned his post, he went back to Rome and lived out his days there. And just as a tiny little side note, total trivia. Again, it'll be on the test. <laughs> uh, Seneca died in 64. Gallio died in 65. Seneca was assassinated, killed, poisoned by his student because the, there was a, an attempt on Nero's life and he blamed Seneca for being part of the plot. But most evidence that they look back now in history says he had nothing to do with it. Meanwhile, his brother, a year later, was also killed by Nero because of that plot from the year earlier. In other words, he just started killing people at random. Anybody close to him or associated with his family, he started wiping them out. Oh, and another minor thing. In 59, Nero killed his mother for plotting against him. One big happy family. Oh. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> so you have Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, coming to Corinth in 51 AD, right around the time Paul is there, right about the time that Paul is having conflict with the Jews. He walks out of their synagogue and says, I'm done with you people. The Jews obviously are offended by this. They're offended by the fact that Paul is preaching Christ crucified, that Christ is the, um, the Messiah. And so they come before Gallio. Now Gallio is described by Seneca in Seneca's writings as being blessed with an unaffectedly pleasant personality and quote, no mortal is so pleasant to any person as Gallio is to everyone. That's not your typical Roman governor. He's a nice guy, as nice as a Roman governor can be, but at least his brother loved him. Um, and they bring him before, it says here, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. The tribunal is the judgment seat. Now, I think I told you that I had the privilege of going to Corinth a billion years ago uh, when I was a college freshman. And you can go to the ancient Corinth uh, area 
and they have uncovered the judgment seat. They discovered it about 100 years ago, and they dug up a whole bunch of stuff. And it's a bench, basically, on which a, a chair was placed. So it's a raised dais about this high, and then the emperor, whoever, the proconsul, whoever would come in and, and be the judge would sit up here. And it's also known as the bima. And you may have heard that word mentioned in judgment at the end times, the, the, the judgment seat of Christ, the bima. That's what this is. It's a judgment seat. Now, a little bit of background. In the, um, this nice little book called A Week in the Life of Corinth by Ben Witherington. <clears throat> I'm just a little side note. I bought this book thinking it would be great background for my study of, the Cor of, of Corinth. Uh, and I began reading it, and it's a novel. I thought it was nonfiction. The title says nonfiction. The author is a well-known New Testament scholar, and I start reading this story with dialogue. I'm going, what in the world? And yet there's photos. I'm going, how can they have photos in a novel about something that happened 2,000 years ago? Um, but it's a very odd mix of nonfiction articles interspersed throughout the novel. So he's telling the story, but then he stop, steps back and says, okay, let me explain what's going on here historically so you can understand this story. Well, he gets to the trial of Paul here, and he says, writes this, the process of a Roman trial in the provinces, provinces was clear enough in Paul's day. The prosecution came before the proconsul, the governor, and reported its case. The accused was then summoned to appear before the proconsul. In our story, both of these things have already happened. So we're stepping into, in Acts, we're stepping into the story after some preliminary legal proceedings had already been completed. On occasion, there would be a sort of preliminary fact-finding hearing with the trial deferred until later while the judge mulled things over. Roman trials like these were trials by judge than trials by jury. Since, however, the trial proceedings in this case were accusatorial, that means an accusation had already been leveled, rather than a matter of inquisition or inquiry, Roman law required that the accuser had to appear with the defendant before the judge. In other words, you couldn't accuse someone in abstention. You had to actually go there and make your case. And they had to make their accusations directly in front of the judge. Once the accusations were laid out in court, then the defendant himself must respond. Notice the phrase must. You can't just be silent. Jesus was silent, but that was a different situation. But must respond. In such trials, the legal rule, the burden of proof laid on the accuser. You're innocent until proven guilty. Ha! Huh. That's not American. Oh, sorry. It's supposed to be. Anyway, the judge had flexibility in establishing what the real bone of contention was and determine the punishment. And I'll finish the paragraph. We must assume that the case described in Acts 18 is an extraordinem case, which requires the governor himself to hear it. 
In other words, it's an extraordinary thing. It isn't just a simple uh, dispute over a property line. In Corinth, this involved the proconsul coming and sitting in the tribunal on the judgment seat to personally decide the matter. He was assisted by his notarius, his notary. That's where we get the word notary, notary, who wrote up the minutes of the proceeding. Isn't that fascinating? While the proconsul could render summary justice immediately, he could also postpone the rendering of the verdict, and neither party in the litigation could speed up the process in any way, shape, or form. Indeed, the proconsul could postpone things indefinitely because he had imperium, which is the authority and power and authorization from the Roman Senate to do what he thought best. Postponements could be devastating. For example, the famous historian Polybius was under arrest for 15 years while his case kept getting postponed. So, we have this setup. The Jews are accusing, it says right here, verse 13, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to law. Well, what law? They're saying the Roman law. The Roman law was pretty broad. There were multiple religions, multiple, but they were all authorized. Rome, the Senate, the whole legal system said, well, here's all these religions and they're all fine. There are some that are illegal or illicit and we will you know, suppress those, but they rarely did. So they came before Gallio in an attempt to make Christianity a federal crime. Not a civil crime, it's not a civil matter, but imagine what would have happened if what we see in this story went a different way. But let's look at what actually happened. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, in other words, Paul was ready to make his defense. He was standing there, he'd heard the accusations, he's just about to speak, and the governor, Gallio, steps in and goes, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, not Roman law, your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things, and he drove them from the tribunal. That's extraordinary. Because what the Jews were trying to do was to say that Christianity, because see, Christianity at the time was seen as a sect or a part of Judaism. And the Jews at the time were trying to say, no, it's two radically different things. And this, this Christianity stuff is dangerous. It will incite riots. It will create problems. Don't forget that a year or two before this, Claudius had thrown all the Jews out of Rome. Because Priscilla and Quilla were in Rome. And they got kicked out. They had moved to Corinth to set up their tent-making shop. And the history 
that was written about it say, said that they were thrown out because of the problems related to Crestus. C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S, Crestus. Many believe the possibility, we don't know for sure, that the writer who wrote that didn't know the word Christos. C-H-R-I-S-T-O-S about the Christ. That there's a possibility that the Jews and the Christians were fomenting challenges to the imperial religion. Anybody know what the imperial religion was? Someone take a guess? Caesar is God. Caesar is God. Starting back with Augustus 50, 60 years ago. So we have this idea that, that one of the approved religions even though the others were okay, is that as long as you thought that Caesar was God, you're, you could do whatever you wanted. Well, Jews said there's no God but Yahweh. The Christians were coming and saying there is no God but Jesus Christ. That kind of goes against the grain. So we have here the attempt to say or to make Christianity a religio illicita and it was thrown out in court. Didn't even get a hearing. Now, if Gallio had agreed with the Jews, Christianity would have become illegal and a precedent would have been set throughout the entire Roman Empire. That means every other major colony, every other major area that had a proconsul would hear about what Gallio had done. And so when I was mentioning this to Lisa, Lisa made a very good point. She said, well, isn't it interesting that in God's economy, she didn't say it this way, but I did. I'm interpreting it. In God's economy and in God's will and God's providence, he put Gallio there for this short two-year period that when this case came before him, he threw it out. God used Gallio to allow for the continued spread of Christianity and Paul's work. That's really incredible. Yeah. yeah, and the fact that Gallio, by the word of his brother, was a particularly good guy. Yeah. God put a good guy. Put a good guy who was willing to listen yeah. to reason. Mm -hmm. And his brother, his younger brother, Seneca was known for his erudite, I mean, the guy, erudite, well, however you want to pronounce it, was brilliant. So, most likely, Gallio had a good mind as well. And so there was this logic, this philosophy, this understanding of, well, what are you doing? Don't bother me with this. What's significant, though, is the next half of that verse or in the next verse actually, verse 17. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to this. Now, remember, let me get my, my text right, earlier in verse 8 of chapter 18, Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue, but he had become a Christian. 
So they had to have a replacement. And now we know the name of the replacement. Sosthenes. We don't know who the they is that seized him. We don't know if it was Jews who were angry at him for blowing the case, so they beat up the lawyer. I don't know. Could it have been anti-Jewish onlookers, uh, Gentiles, who were angry? Or could it have even been Roman guards who basically beat him for wasting the time of the governor? The fact that he throws them out, he drives them out of the area, and they attack the guy and beat him up. And Gallio doesn't care. It's like, eh, it's not my problem. By saying it's not my problem, most likely it meant that it was Jew upon Jew. They're solving their problem in-house, and he didn't care. Now. This is really fascinating, so I'm going to jump ahead to page two of your text. The very bottom, and this is the reason why I put it in your, your printout. See the very bottom, I have the first verses of 1 Corinthians. You all there? Let's read it. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and our brother, Sosthenes. Now, I got kind of chills when I read that. <laughs> Could it be that this Sosthenes of chapter 18 is the one of 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1? Sosthenes is not an uncommon name. I mean, there's a lot of records of that name being used. So the chances are it's not the same person. Because 1 Corinthians is written from Ephesus, not Corinthians, not from Corinth. However, it's missing in the English translation. In the Greek translation, it reads, Kai and Sosthenes ha the Adolphus, the brother. Not our brother, the brother. Could it be that Paul, in writing Corinthians, he wanted the Corinthian church to know that the brother, the one that they all knew, is with him in Ephesus and helping him to write? They actually think that Sosthenes was the scribe who helped Paul dictate this letter. If that's the case, can you imagine... <laughs> The Jewish people, they lose one ruler of the synagogue and then they lose another. Christianity is a very powerful force. And who knows, maybe he was, Sosthenes was a little um, weakened by being beaten. Uh, <laughs> not really a well-loved candidate for the, uh, the office. We don't know. It's speculation. But it is fascinating. The text continues. Verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria along with him, Priscilla and Aquila. That's significant. You have two 
very strong leaders of the Corinthian church, now going on the road with Paul. At Centrea, and just a reminder, if you have Corinth here, you have the Isthmus, which I talked at way too much length the last time we were together. The Isthmus, the three-mile Isthmus, Centrea is down here. Uh, it's Latium, I think. Lachium is with the northern side. Centrea is the port city for Corinth, the southern port city. And it said he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. Either his favorite barber lived there, or we have something else going on, but we're not quite sure what. Now, by context, the he, of he had cut his hair, means Paul. Because all the other pronouns he mean Paul in this passage. But there are some who speculate that the he is actually Aquila. Because he's mentioned in the previous sentence. Doesn't matter. The question is, what do you mean he cut his hair because he took a vow? What kind of vow in the Jewish faith meant you didn't cut your hair? Anybody remember? The Nazarite vow. You didn't cut your hair. You did not cut your hair until the vow was complete. Mm -hmm. So you had, I think it was Samson had taken the Nazarite vow and he got his strength from his length of his hair. At least that's the way the story is written. We don't know. Could it be that Paul had let his hair grow as a sign of his devotion? a physical representation of his devotion. We don't know. It's possible. But then he's leaving town, and the idea is that when you end your vow, you end your Nazarite vow, you take the shorn hair and take it to Jerusalem and present it at the temple as an offering. So you kind of wonder at what point that Paul feel he needed to end this vow and go back to Jerusalem. And so they crossed the ocean. They crossed the ocean to Ephesus, and Paul left Priscilla and Aquila there, while he himself went to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay longer, he declined. And taking leave of them, he said, I'll return to you if God wills. And he set sail from his, if Ephesus, and if you look at your maps that are in the back of your Bible, of the second missionary journey, you'll see Paul goes from Ephesus down south through, the, through the, uh, the waters, through the Mediterranean Sea, and ends up either in Jerusalem or Syria in that area, back home. Now, I could end there, and we could start our discussion of 1 Corinthians, but I do want to look at the balance of the chapter just to leave it in historical context. We're not going to dig into these verses 24 through 28 very far um, because we'll come back to it later in our chronology. But for right now, so we get a sense of what's going on, you have in verse 24 a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria in Egypt, came to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures, meaning the Old Testament. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, 
though he only knew of the baptism of John. He didn't know the full story. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they mentored him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately that they had learned from Paul. And when Apollos wished to cross to Achaia, Corinth, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the Corinthian church, to the disciples, to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. For he powerfully, powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. There are many theorists that believe that Apollos is the author of Hebrews. And it's very likely. So you have an amazingly gifted man from Egypt, who is a Jew, who is an intellectual rival of Paul, if you want to talk just pure smarts. But he goes to where Paul had established a church in Corinth. And you should look at chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Paulus was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There's approximately a year between the end of chapter 18 and the beginning of chapter 19. Because for Paul to leave Ephesus, go all the way down the Mediterranean, make his way, and then by land comes back through Asia Minor, through Turkey, by foot, he comes all the way back to Ephesus, which is on the west coast of Turkey. You have about a year's period. And now is when Paul writes the book of 1 Corinthians from Ephesus to the church and the people that he knew. So here we go. Corinth. I, I gave you a little touch about Corinth uh, when we started in chapter 18 of Acts. But now when we're looking at the book of Corinthians, the two letters, and we'll get this, uh, we'll dig into this a little more in detail when we get there. But this actually is likely the second letter to the Corinthians, not the first. We've lost the first one. Because Paul alludes to a previous letter in 1 Corinthians. So let's call this 1st A Corinthians. <laughs> Is that there was another letter, probably shorter, dealing with sexual immorality. And now Paul writes and expands it much more effectively. So the city of Corinth. Fascinating city. Give you a little history here. In 146 BC, the city of Corinth was destroyed by Rome. And when I say destroyed, they knocked it down. Every single building flattened it. Because there had been the war between Rome and Carthage. You may remember that from your history books. Way back in the BCs. One of their allies was Achaia, the Corinthian church. I'm sorry, not the Corinthian church, the Corinthians uh, and Corinth 
were part of the Carthage element. And after Carthage had been um, defeated, the Corinthians rose up like they could beat Rome. And there's actually a, a complete, uh, very detailed history of the battle over Corinth with how many troops were involved on each side. I was reading about this going, wow, what I didn't know, <laughs> another great trivia thing, when you start getting on the internet, your, your links go everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, there was a movie made in 1961 in Italy called The Centurion. And it's a love story between a centurion of Corinth and a Roman girl. It was never translated in English, <laughs> only done, but it's all based around the battle between Rome and Corinth in 146 BC. They killed all the men, Rome killed all the men and took all the women and children and sold them into slavery. They wiped out the city. They were not careful. They were immensely destructive. In other words, whoever was in charge at the time was pretty upset. They had already won the battle and this, these, you know, this outpost starts sticking up. So the area lay fallow. Corinth was, didn't exist until 44 BC. So for 100 years, this area was pretty much empty. Oh, there were the occasional people who would try to, you know, go into a wrecked building or something and set up shop or something like that. But it, there was nothing there. In 44 BC, Julius Caesar said, rebuild the city. And Julius Caesar was also the one who looked at, if you want to look at page three of your uh, handout, you can see the map at the top. You can see where Corinth is. You see that little isthmus just to the, to the right of it? That's three miles long. And Julius Caesar actually looked at that and said, it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to have a southern port, Centrea, and a northern port, Lycaeum. We should build a canal between the two. And it didn't really get off the ground because a month after Julius Caesar declared Corinth a colony and a colonized city, he was assassinated. So the plans to build the canal didn't actually go anywhere. So one of the last acts Julius Caesar ever did was establish Corinth as a city. The, and it was later, uh, Claudius tried to start the canal, Nero tried to build the canal, it got as far as putting a, uh, a symbol of Poseidon or Neptune on the wall, which is still there today. You can actually go see it. But the canal itself wasn't completed until 1893. And it's completely useless except for tourists now because they didn't build it wide enough and didn't figure out the fact that the southern lake, the southern ocean and the northern ocean were two different heights. So when they meet in the middle, it kind of creates a problem of waves that don't help the transport of the uh, boats across the canal, but at least they tried. But before the canal was built, if you wanted to come up from the southern area or even from the east 
and you wanted your goods to go to Rome, or you wanted your goods to go by land up into Greece, you would stop at Centrea. If you wanted to keep going, you could go around the southern part of the ocean. Take six days to make the trip. Six full days, and the southern part of that water is very volatile. A lot of shipwrecks in the southern part of that ocean. So what they would do is they would unload their goods in Centrea, put them on trucks. Yeah, they had trucks back then. Four-wheeled with you know nice rubber tires. Uh, they put them on wagons and cart them the three-mile thing and then reload them on another boat on the other end to go the other direction. Conversely, coming from the north, you would come in, unload, take your stuff to Centrea, and then go around if you wanted to get to Ephesus. It was the easy way to do it. Corinth made their money by taxing both ends. They were not dumb. So 44 BC, you have Corinth founded by Julius Caesar. Then you have 51 AD, you have Paul coming. 52, you have Gallio in that story. Then you have 54, so we're now up to 54 AD. Paul writes to the Corinthians, approximately two years later. Now, <clears throat> a couple other little interesting tidbits about Corinth that is known, and you can see this wonderful map that I found that I put at the bottom. Uh, this actually is a description or a 3D rendering of the, uh, the archaeological digs that you can visit today if you go to ancient Corinth. Uh, it was kind of fun for me when I was looking at this, I actually stood in front of the Bema. I, you could walk right up to it. We also went to bathhouses where, it's going to be kind of gross, but it was weird. You have these shaped holes in stones about this high. <coughs> Toilets. One after another. But, as the guide told us, there was no pit underneath them. So where does the stuff go? They ran water under it. They actually had you know, running water in their bathhouses to remove the waste. Now where it went, I have no idea. But that was one of the inventions of the time. You think of this 2,000 years ago. They're bringing the water probably from the northern ocean via aqueduct and then dropping it into their area. The Temple of Apollo you see right in the middle. Uh, about eight or nine of the pillars are still standing today. And they're rather magnificent. If you notice up at the top of this particular map, you see the Temple of Octavia. And I had to go, Octavia? Octavia is not a god. Anybody remember who Octavia was? Augustus. Augustus' wife. So they built a temple for the imperial worship. And in this temple was a statue of Octavia sitting on a throne. I mean, this is unusual. There's not very many temples to Octavia. But they found a bronze you know, plaque with her name. And then the description of the statue is found by a 
in an ancient traveler who traveled through Corinth and, just, and wrote about what he saw. And he saw this particular, particular thing. The Odeon that you see there, that's an unusual word. I don't know what in the world is an Odeon. Any guesses? It's the musical theater. This is where they performed music, where they would have concerts. So the arts were prevalent. Then you see below that, the theater, that's the theater where the dramas were performed. In fact, Seneca was known for his drama. He had three or four major plays that were well known throughout the empire. That theater seats 10,000 people. Just to compare, let's go down to, what is it now called, Talking Stick Resort Arena? used to be America West Arena, it used to be whatever it was. That seats about, what, 18,000? So cut it in half and put the stage at the floor. That's this theater. It's a lot of people. The city itself, there are a number of guesses, but based on certain census that were taken, in fact, Claudius did a sentence a census in 52 AD where they counted every Roman in the Roman Empire. Based on that, they think that Corinth had almost 200,000 people in it. Athens only had 20,000. So of those 200,000, 60% of them were slaves. But because of its location, if you look again at that map, the southern and the northern commerce all rolling through this area. They were a very wealthy city. One commentator said the closest economic parallel that he could make in a city is Hong Kong. Where the whole world passed through its port. And you think of Hong Kong before it was assimilated by China. And even still, it's a powerful spot in the region. Everything from west and from east would actually come through Hong Kong. The same thing was happening here. A very wealthy city. There were temples to Apollo, Aphrodite, Poseidon, Asclepius, and Demeter. There were magic cults for Isis, ISIS, not the Arabic bad guys. This was an actual mythical god. And Serapis. Strabo, a um, historian from the time, he wrote this about Corinth. Corinth is called wealthy because of its commerce, since it's situated on the isthmus and is master of two harbors of which one leads straight to Asia, the other to Italy. And it makes easy the exchange of merchandise from both countries that are so far distant from each other. One more thing, which I did not re did, had never passed my eyes in all these years of reading, but Corinth had their own Olympics, but they weren't called the Olympics. They were called the Isthmian Games for the Isthmus. So you see that map, you see the Isthmus. They actually held Isthmian games. 
Now, Athens is only 50 miles away. Athens is where they had the Olympics. But, like our modern day Olympics, there weren't Olympics every year. So, you, let's say we talk uh, Summer Olympics every four years, right? So what happens in the ensuing years? What do we have today? What is it called? Exactly, World Championships. Well, the Athenian Olympics were every other year, so every two years. So in the in-between year, they had the Isthmian Games. I never knew this. That added more commerce coming to Corinth. It was brilliant, a brilliant move. And the Isthmian Games go all the way back to the early and ancient Corinth. So there was a 100-year period where it didn't happen. But then they were started up again. When Corinth started, was rebuilt, they also restarted the Isthmian Games. Now, I, I actually read about a time, it was in 58 AD, a particular man won the gold, so which is the laurel wreath of champion, in boxing, wrestling, and pancration. I thought, okay, I know what boxing is. I know what wrestling is. But what in the world is pancration? And no one had ever won all three. Pancration is ancient MMA. Mixed martial arts. It was boxing, wrestling, kicking, and it was the word pancration literally means all force. It was the most dangerous sport to be in because to win, the other guy had to be either knocked out, killed, or he had to see how submit. Wow, I had no idea they were doing MMA in 54 AD, but they were. Um, so. For all of you who don't like to watch that, just think it's an, it has an ancient tradition to it. Um, because of these Isthmian games, it makes you wonder, was Paul referring to the Isthmian games in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he talks about where you run the race? Now, everyone thinks he was talking about the Athenian Olympics, which he might have. They were very well known. But this is down the street. It would be like us having the Isthmian Games at our arena downtown. Yeah. And didn't you say the population in Corinth was massively greater? Massively greater. The, the, the domination had flipped from Athens to Corinth in this period of time because of the economy. And what's interesting, modern day, it's the opposite. Corinth itself was destroyed in 1858, I believe it was, by an earthquake, so they had to move the city five miles away, which is why we were able to dig all this stuff up now. And then Athens now is where there's a million and a half people. It's just a massive humanity there. So the Isthmian games were the big deal. They were a big deal. Maybe even probably bigger economically. Economically, very and possibly. And but prestige, the prestige was still the Athenian game. I'm not sure this exact place, but I was with Youth for Christ in 1950. And they took over one of those old arenas, and we had a gospel service there for hundreds of locals really? in uh, the, the, about 1950. It's very possible it was here at this particular arena because they've uncovered most of it. Um, one other little trivia thing 
this is just, again, one of those moments where I went, oh, you've got to be kidding, the class is going to love this. So emperors like to uh, imprint coins of their head, of their face, you know, portrait, <clears throat> side, a side view. Nero did it multiple times. One of them shows him with a laurel wreath on his head. That means champion of the games. Yes, Nero entered. We're not sure whether it was the Athenian games or the Isthmian games, but he won in the category of poetry. And I thought, okay, talk about stacking the deck. Who's going to say, the judge, oh, sorry, Nero, we didn't like the third stanza. No, you win, sir. You're amazing. We will put this on your head. And the poor actual poets are sitting there going, well, that was fair. Uh, but yeah, they, we, we know that Nero won. He was an Olympic champion. <laughs> and he was so into sports, he tried to restart the Olympics in Rome. In 67 AD, there were actually an Olympiad in Rome. And one story, it's hard to corroborate because there's only one or two story, sources that are a little later in, the, in history, but that at the time he was rather corpulent. Let's just say he was a large man. And he tried to get in the chariot races and flipped his chariot and it almost killed him. He didn't win that race. There was no way they could give, maybe they gave him a participation medal. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway. Also, Corinth was known for its temple to Aphrodite, which was at the top of the Acrocorinth. On your map, you can see in the upper left-hand corner is a little arrow pointing north. This would be like us being right here in ancient Corinth, and we look up at Camelback Mountain which is about 2,000 feet. At the top of Camelback Mountain would be a temple to Aphrodite. In ancient Corinth, I mean long time ago, it is well established that there were a thousand temple prostitutes up there. We're not exactly sure how extensive it was at the time of Paul, but we know they were there and they were still working their trade. And they would come down from the mountain into the city and ply their trade as worship of Aphrodite. And there were those within the church, as we will find in, when we study it, who didn't see anything wrong with that. And so Paul had some very uh, strong things to say. There's even one story came out saying that these women had on the bottom of their sandals, in Greek, the words, follow me, so that would be imprinted in the dirt as they walked. Yeah. Um, in regard to the Isthmian Games, was, was, is there anywhere on this map that the, the site? It was not was in Corinth itself. It would have been outside okay. the city. Okay. Yeah, where they would have big fields and all of that, um, because there was no there was no Colosseum ever built. Okay. Not like you found in Rome. There was no really there, that really was never set up there. One commentator wrote that if Paul were to write a letter to the evangelical Bible-believing church of the late 20th century or early 21st century now, I believe it would be much like 1 Corinthians. 
Their world was like our world. The same thirst for intellectualism, the same permissiveness towards moral standards, the same fascination for the spectacular. And their church was like our church, proud, affluent, materialistic, fiercely eager for intellectual and social acceptance by the world, doctrinally orthodox, but morally and practically conforming to the world. In the next pages of your text, of your handout, and I'm not going to go to them in detail because we don't have the time, but you'll find an outline of 1 Corinthians. The first half of page 1 is a brilliant outline from uh, Charles Swindoll's uh, work where you can see how the first six chapters deal with disorders and divisions within the church. And then there were specific questions or difficulties that he dealt with. Domestic, social, ecclesiastical, practical, doctrinal, and financial. The next chart I have is that you will find at the beginning of each of these verses, 7-1, and 16-12, is the Greek phrase that is translated, now concerning, or now about, if you are in the NIV, which meant a question had been posed to Paul in another letter from the Corinthian church saying, well, what do we do about this? And so he says, now about marriage, virgins, food offered to idols, spiritual gifts, and Apollos himself. This is how we deal with this. You also have a, another way of looking at it all is about the various reports that Paul may have received. But on the last page, Another author named Eckhard Schnabel broke down Corinthians into two major categories. Conflict within the church itself and the compromising of their faith. So it helps if we, as you'll see, they're kind of all mixed together. This is why it makes Corinthians sometimes a little hard to study when you go straight from chapter 1 to chapter 16 because it seems to bounce around a little bit from idea or theme or question. But Paul didn't write 1 Corinthians as a textbook. It's a letter. Mm-hmm. We have to remember that. So he's responding, yeah, it's a weak word, but conversationally. He's addressing issues. So. Our fun for the next however many weeks it will take for us to get through 1 Corinthians, it ultimately is a study of Christian ethics. Because every major ethical quandary of our modern era, what we are dealing with today in the media, what the world is telling us is is true, versus what the Bible says is true, is going to be addressed. And yes, we're going to run into situations and highly controversial passages. Some that have started entire churches based on a particular verse, or church practices based on a particular verse or an interpretation of a verse. It's an enormous undertaking. As your teacher, Hooray! Uh, This is going to take a lot of work. But the idea, I think, for us to do is, as we work through this, is is to prayerfully consider 
What is God trying to say to us today based on what Paul addressed years ago, but under the inspiration that it will become Scripture as a guide for us? We believe that the Bible is the Word of God without fail, without compromise, there's no way. So we have to deal with what's said. But when we run into situations like, you know, women need to wear head covering, you kind of go, what? What does that mean? And why can we dispense with that, but not this? So we're going to be having fun, if you want to call it that. But I think this is a serious undertaking. Incredibly timely because of what we are being, how should I say, assaulted with in our media every day on what is truth. And no one wants to believe what the Bible has to say about it. But at least we have a common foundation that we can at least start and have the dialogue and have a conversation. So I look forward to our study. Let me end with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for our time together, for this immense privilege to study your word, to hear what you have to say. It's just amazing to watch your providence in all things, even going back to a story 2,000 years ago where Christianity was being legally assaulted and the secular government at the time said, what's the problem? That's mind-boggling. And yet, why should we be surprised that you are sovereign? You are all-powerful. You are in control of all of these things. You're never surprised by human sin. You're never surprised. And you always provide for our salvation in all things and in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.